Great to be with you this morning. What, what a difference it is when you get up in the morning and you go outside and the first thing that happens is you're not wet, right? And then you get to look around and it is so beautiful. Amen? Come on. I know it's not Maui, but it's, it's pretty beautiful out there. So listen, good morning. My name is Glenn. For those of you who are visiting here today, it's my pleasure to bring God's Word most weeks. And I'm really encouraged this morning because we are beginning a, a tradition here at the Rock Church uh, for this December, which is our Advent series. We do this every year, and uh, we'll get more into that and what it's all about in a second. The first thing that I want to do, though, is I want to read the beginning of Luke. Uh, if you have your Bibles with you, you want to open to the Gospel of Luke. We're going to be in chapter 1, beginning there. And so this is kind of an amazing thing. We actually are beginning our Advent series, which is always about the coming of Jesus at Christmas as a baby. Uh, most of us know the basics of the story. But this year, it actually coincides with the beginning of a brand new series in the Gospel of Luke. Go figure. It's interesting, and we're going to see this today in, in mostly an introduction to the Gospel and who Luke is. But it's interesting that he starts with the birth story, the, the coming of Jesus into the world, and it lines up perfectly so that over the next four weeks, right up until Christmas Eve on December 24th, which is actually a Sunday, so we get to have a morning service and Christmas Eve service. Everybody say, woohoo. Yeah. I know it's exciting for the setup teams and all that, but it's going to be awesome. And so we're going to, I'm going to begin reading. I'll read, and then I'm going to pray, and then we're going to dive into this, uh, this new book uh, this morning. Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, so read with me. I'll put them on screen, actually, for those of you who don't have a Bible with you. Inasmuch as many, now this is Luke writing, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses, and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having all followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you once again for this opportunity to gather here today. Father, we've already in prayer reflection uh, looked at the passage in Isaiah that talks about how, how you, you, your word will go forth no matter who's speaking it, how well they're speaking it, or even being read, your word will go forth and it will bear fruit. Oh, Father, we pray that today. I pray, Lord, that you would use uh, my humble words, the words that you've given to me from your text today to share with this, uh, this church today. Lord, I pray uh, that you would use these words. Praise Holy Spirit that you would really teach us some wonderful, amazing things about who you are, what you've done, about Jesus that Luke wants to introduce us to in a very special way. So, Father, I just pray for your presence here today, and I pray that you would guide us in all these things in Jesus' worthy name. Amen. So, again, we're here at this time uh, in our Advent series. We do it every year. And I, I think it's one thing to say that we, we love Christmas, uh, pretty much everyone in our world today, very few people, I mean, some people have had some tragic experiences, and, and Christmas has not been the most wonderful time of the year, but for most people in our culture today, they certainly try to make it into an incredible event, a wonderful time, a happy time, and it is. But it's one thing to say that. It's something altogether for us to say that we love the Advent season. And that's why we're actually doing this as a church, to remind us about the coming of Jesus into this world 2017 years ago. Yes, it's that date today, it's 2017 today, because of the birth of this child. Nobody else in history, it's because of Him. And that's a remarkable and wonderful thing. 
So I, I want to, if, if you don't mind, to start today, highlight uh, for one more time why we as a church decide to do this, because it's interesting, as you're going to see. First, we, we, we want to do this because, come on, it's Christmas, right? It, it's a good thing to, to focus on the story of Christmas at this time of year for certain, God's story of sending His Son Jesus into the world 2017 years ago, never, I feel, gets old. It doesn't get old. I mean, you can actually look at the story throughout the year and be excited about it and encouraged about it because it's a, it's a fantastic story. But that naturally leads into the second reason why we as a church do this. Um, it's quite clear. I've been watching, I don't know about you, if you watch commercials, you watch television, I happened to see a program the other night, you know, that the happiest place on earth, you know, down there in California, they had a wonderful, you know, launch into December Christmas show and program. I mean, our culture, our culture has decided that in this time of year, they have decided that there is a wonderful and grand story that they can tell that is actually a better story than this story. And so for us as the church, it's very important, I think, that we recognize and come to recognize so that we can share with this world that, no, 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 wait a second. <laughs> That's not the best story. That's not the great story. The great story is Jesus. That's the grand and wonderful story. And we as Christians in this culture, I feel, and we believe as a church, we need to be reminded of that. So that story is more about the story of our world and our culture is more about the gifts, right, than it is about the gift, the gift of God's Son that He gave to this world 2,000 years ago. So I, even for the committed and conscientious Christian, which I hope most of us in this room are, uh, this time of year can feel like a real burden. It can be a real burden. I know in our home, I've said to Janice repeatedly, she's not in the room, I can, I can get away with it. This is awesome. I have said to her, honey, December 1st is around the corner. Please, please do not schedule too many things. Because, you know, like, I kind of get stressed out. I don't know about you, but there's so many things to do. And because you got to do them, you've got to do them well, because it's so special. Christmas vacation, we're going to be watching in a couple of weeks. Things just don't always turn out the way you would hope, especially when you have expectations that the world and our culture puts on us, that we can put on us. So it's important for us to see it that way. Thirdly, and I think this is most important, I think the most important reason why we need to do this and look at the story as the church, as Christians, is for the sake of these little ones we just sent out of this room, right? For their sake. Because listen, and, and hear me when I say this, I think it's, it's totally okay in our world that focuses on the lights, on happy holidays, and the big guy in a Coca-Cola red suit, okay? I think it's okay, honestly which is why we had Santa at the ledge on Friday night. I think it's okay to walk alongside our culture and our world as they celebrate this season the way that they do. But I'll tell you what I don't think is okay, what we shouldn't think is okay. I don't think it's okay for us to tell our children that that story is true. Amen? It's important, it's important at Advent that, that we remember that this is the time where we tell our children, we introduce our children to the better story, the story of Jesus coming at Christmas. So that's a very important reason why we do this. And so that's why we want to spend the next four Sundays together reminding ourselves about God's story, the greatest story really of all time. And it's not, it starts at Christmas, and that's why we're going to go through the Gospel of Luke. We're going to see the whole story as recorded by one Gospel writer. We want to journey together and see new ways in which God prepared His creation, prepared, 
I mean, the, the verses we saw in Isaiah earlier today, that's from a thousand years before the birth of Jesus. In the Word of God, men recorded that God would send him, and he did. So God had planned this and prepared his creation for the birth of his son, Jesus Christ, so that we can be the light of Christ in this world today, retelling the best story ever to our family and to our friends, and we begin together and also with our children. So this year we're beginning our Advent series simultaneous, as I said, with the start of this new series in the Gospel of Luke. And, and it's remarkable, as I hope you will see, how Luke has crafted his Gospel. It's, it's an amazing writing that we're going to see today. And he starts with the coming. He actually starts his Gospel. We're not going to dive into too much of it today, but over the next three weeks we'll see that. Today's more of an introduction. And so let me also say this important thing at this point, uh, at this juncture in the series, in the beginning of our message. The, the Advent season, this might be a surprise to some of you, but the Advent season um, and the Christmas holidays were completely foreign to the early church. They knew nothing of it. I mean, they knew that Jesus was born, and they knew the story of Jesus being born, and actually it wasn't until Luke crafted his gospel that they knew as much as we know today, and that's, so that's 30 years after Jesus has ascended and churches have been planted all over the known world at that time. It was foreign to them in that day. In fact, the two primary celebrations of the church in that day were celebrations that we do as a church every week. One of them is, and that was communion. They would gather together every week. They would break bread, which is something that Jesus asked them to do, and that was a celebration that was held every week. That was something that they celebrated weekly, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus as seen in the bread and in the wine. But the other one, the big one for them, was Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday. I mean, most of the early church, most of, not all, but most of the early church were Jews. And so it lined up perfectly with the Passover every year, and that was just a standard thing for them to, of course, continue because Jesus' last meal before the cross was the Passover meal. He is the lamb that was sacrificed. And so for them, that was the celebrations of the year. It wasn't until actually the year 336 A.D., um, or Common Era, uh, it was until that time when the Roman Church, the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, and Constantine brought the two together, and Constantine and the church decided at that time that December 25th was the birth of Jesus Christ, and we are going to celebrate Christmas. So it was a foreign thing. That's important for us to recognize. It was an important for us to recognize. And so it's funny how the death of an innocent man at the hands of brutal men and his resurrection from the dead, proving that he was indeed God in the flesh, is overshadowed by the story of a baby born in swaddling clothes, right? It's a lovely story. And yet in our world today, it's not the best story compared to some of the other ones that are being presented. And I think you know that. And so still, we're celebrating Christmas. Amen? Has anybody got a tree yet? <laughs> like, I'm getting pressure, okay? Like, like and, and, I, and I just want to go get one of the cultured ones, and she always wants to go out with the saw, and I, that's just too painful for me. But anyway, we celebrate Christmas, and it's awesome, and we should. We should be excited about doing that. So again, our purpose as the church is twofold. First, to center our hearts and minds on the real reason for the season. But secondly, it's so that we can be a living testimony here today, but also in our lives of the coming of Jesus into this world and be an example to this world. 
So I've titled this message, this intro message, A Skeptic's Gospel. Now, some of you might find that interesting, but we're going to see why in just a minute. I've titled it that, and that's one reason why I'm so excited about Luke's Gospel. I really am. I've always loved it. Uh, We went through the book of Acts earlier in the church, maybe a few years ago, another book that uh, Luke wrote. But I love this. It's by far the longest of the four Gospels that has been written, and it contains many facts and teachings that are not found in the other four Gospels. Most notably are these first two chapters that we'll look at between now and Christmas about the coming of Jesus. Luke is the only one who records these about Zechariah, Elizabeth, and Mary in the way that he does. So today what we're going to do as we launch, uh, what we'll do to launch us into Luke's wonderful account of the birth of Jesus, is we're going to look at three things. It's actually only three things. It might sound like four, but it's three things. We're going to look at uh, the, the who and the whom, that's one, the who and the whom, the how and the why. So we're going to look at who wrote this gospel and to whom. Now, I've already told you it's Luke, but I need to show you that. And to whom did he write it? How he wrote it is really important, which is very fascinating. And then finally, why? Answering the question, what was his purpose? What was his purpose distinctly from Matthew, Mark, and John for writing his gospel? So first of all, let's look at who is Luke. Um, There's no question if you study uh, commentaries, but also history and the writings of the rest of the New Testament, that Luke is the one who wrote this particular gospel. It's interesting because when you read the gospel from beginning to end, he never names himself. He, he never declares, he never cites himself as the author. He is named in the gospel, but not as the author of the gospel. So this is actually one book, as I've mentioned, split into two uh, by our writers. It's one book. He wrote the, the book of uh, the gospel first, and then he wrote the book of Acts. It's actually one book, but it's interesting how it's been divided today, and it's, there's a reason why I think we'll see that in, as we go further in this. But it's really obvious mostly from Paul's letters where, and in the book of Acts where we see a lot of Luke using the statements, we statements. In other words, when he was traveling with Paul and he moves from they to we, and so we know it's Luke with Paul, and then also in Paul's writings, Paul talks about when he is with Luke. And so when it's all put together, we know for certain that it is Luke that wrote this gospel, and that's why it says that in your Bibles. And it's usually the gospel according to Luke which is really important to put it that way, the gospel according to Luke. We also know this about, about, about Luke, and this is not just from history, but it's also from the writings of what scholars tell us as well. We also know from his writing style and the use of the Greek language in both the gospel and in Acts that Luke is a very well-educated man. We know that he's well-educated. We know that he's a Gentile. He's a, he's a Gentile. He's not a Jew who's writing this book. And we also know that previously he was a pagan skeptic. He was a skeptic who, who became a follower of Jesus. So his, his path to faith in Christ is, is interesting and it's important for us to see this. Uh, uh, experts in Greek, they actually point to the use of his Greek in the opening of this letter. Now what we read is four verses, right? Verses one to four. But actually in the Greek, it's one sentence. And again, scholars will point to that and say, If you compare that to Greek authors in that day, secular authors in that day, it's an incredibly beautifully crafted sentence. And so this is one of the things that they they point out about him is that he's highly educated, very educated man. And and he's writing not as as a Jew, but as a Gentile and as a convert well after the church has been established. 
And he didn't know Jesus. He never met Jesus. And so as we see in the how, that's really important. Secondly, we also learn that he's a historian. Uh, He's a history buff, and and he writes as a historian. He tells us in verses 1 to 4 that we've read that many others, many others that he knows of, and any of his readers would know this, have already compiled a narrative, which means they've compiled a written book, a story. They've brought it together and compiled. So, he knew of other books that were out there. And then he says, after following things closely for some time, he thought that he would write a historical account. He puts it this way, I would write an orderly account, and it's for his friend Theophilus. So in one way, we can see his gospel is a little bit like a documentary, right? He, he, he wasn't there at the happenings of many of these things that took place, and so he, he spends many, many years actually, much time going and interviewing people, reading whatever he can get his hands on, and, and, and then compiling this narrative, this gospel, as a historian, as a documentarian. So that's more of what we get to know from Luke. Next, and most people know this because I often, when we, especially when we went through the book of Acts, I always called him Dr. Luke. He was a physician. And Paul tells us in Colossians 4, 14, uh, that Luke is by trade a physician. He, he calls him our beloved physician. And it's pretty clear that, that Paul really loved having Luke with him because Paul was often ill. He had ailments, but also Paul was beaten within an inch of his life three to four times. And so, of course, having Dr. Luke there to care for him was really important. And so he's in that day, doctors would have been seen not just as medical doctors, as practitioners, but as scientists, people who knew the sciences, particularly the anatomy of the body and how the body, the human body worked, which in those days was pretty important. Now, some commentators also believe that like King David, Luke was a bit of a, a musician. Uh, it, it, we're going to see it next week and the week after that some of the, the writings, particularly Mary's what they call the Magnificat, is, is a poem, but it's written in the form of a song. And so some people also believe that Luke is somewhat of a musician. And so this is Luke. This is the who of who he is. He's a historian. He's a documentarian. He's a physician. He's a musician. He, he's this guy who's writing this amazing documentary this historical narrative. And so he's not a pastor. He's not an apostle. He's not really even an evangelist. He's a skeptic. He's a skeptic who had to get all the details together, not only for himself, but for his best friend, one of his close friends, and for you and I, who became a beloved brother, a friend to many in the church in that day, and a co-laborer in the gospel. And so that's the who. Now, to whom did he write the letter? Well, obviously, you can see in the text, uh, and this is one of the things that I personally, I, I love about Luke. When we did the book of Acts, it, it, it starts the same way. He addresses the same person. He talks about Theophilus in the beginning of the book of Acts, and about, you remember in the first letter that I wrote you, the first time I wrote to you, he speaks about his good friend, Theophilus. So we don't really learn, either in Luke or in Acts, any major specifics about Theo. We don't learn a lot about him. But there's some things that we can pull together from what we do read. And the first is, is that term that he uses to address him as most excellent. Other places in the New Testament where that title or that um, precept is used 
to describe someone or to be introducing someone or to write to someone. It's to a Roman governor. It's to an official in the Roman government. And so it's a typical greeting. So most commentators agree uh, that, like Luke, Theophilus was, is, a Gentile, a Roman who it looks like has come to faith in Christ, at least in his early stages, and that Luke sees it as his responsibility to share this good news about Jesus coming into this world and all the things that he did with his good friend, Theophilus. Sounds a little bit like disciple-making, doesn't it? 101. It's personal, this letter. It's to one person. Secondly, however, and this is why I've titled the series The Skeptic's Gospel, is because we can see Luke's gospel as being specifically aimed at the skeptic in the world at that time, the pagan Gentile skeptic as well, which includes pretty much most of us in this room today and the world that we know today. I mean, unless you were born Jewish and a practicing Jew, you're a Gentile, according to the Scripture and the way the Scripture would see that. And so that's most of us in our world today. He, 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 his name literally means, Theophilus literally means, one who's loved by God. And so, which could literally mean, as John 3.16 tells us, for God so loved, what? The whole world. It literally could mean everyone. So right, right there in the beginning, he's writing to this man a, a personal letter, a person who he wants to strengthen in his faith in Jesus Christ, but it's clear He's writing to every skeptic, everyone who needs to have I's dotted and T's crossed and things explained. He's writing to you as well. So Luke, as historian, is key. (laughs) And that now leads to the how, which is really, really interesting. He begins his thesis, this thesis document, by establishing the fact that he is, look at this, citing others. Let's go back to the first two verses where it says, inasmuch... As many have taken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the Word have delivered them to us. So this is the how. Luke tells us he has read every possible source. Many who have written narratives, he's read them. He's basically saying there are books out there on Amazon You can get your Kindle. No, okay, not in that day. But he's basically saying there are books out there. There are a lot of books out there, and I have read them all. He's thorough. He wants to make that point. And that would have included Mark's gospel. Mark's gospel was written probably six to seven years before his gospel. And in fact, again, experts, when they compare Mark's gospel with Luke's gospel, they find 60% of Mark's gospel virtually quoted verbatim. Now, it's interesting, in those days they didn't cite people, so it's not like he's stealing, but they didn't cite in that way. This is actually his citation here. He's saying, I've taken this from other sources, many of these things. 60% uh, is quoted verbatim from Mark's gospel. He speaks also about the things that have been accomplished among us. He spent years and years, 15 to 18 years approximately, on the road with Paul planting churches. And so when he says accomplished among us, he's speaking about the things that he also contributed to that were accomplished. And also Paul and he, look at this, Paul and he, because Paul didn't know Jesus, didn't personally see him crucified, buried, and resurrected. He came to know about this later, just like Luke did. But they had all these eyewitnesses still alive whom they could go and say, hey, whoa, whoa, wait a second. 
You were there? You, you were there when they nailed him to that cross? You were there when he bled and died? And, and, and the Roman centurions verified that he was dead? Those eyewitnesses were there. But also, it goes on to say, but he also heard them preach the word, ministers of the word. See that there? So, so all the times in the churches, they'd heard the apostles, eyewitnesses, not only talking about the things that they had seen, about the truth of who Jesus was, but also them preaching it every Sunday. How remarkable would it be to have somebody here on a Sunday morning who was actually there, right? Well, we do. We have the Holy Spirit, not me, but we have, I'm not that old, but we have the Holy Spirit, amen? He's here. He helped Luke write this and record this, and all the eyewitnesses remember the whole story and the testimony. So Luke's opening then to his gospel is writ- written precisely, I think, to convey the message that his account is, look, it's orderly, it's trustworthy, and it's verifiable. Skeptic, it's orderly, it's trustworthy, and it's verifiable. He has put in the hours the life, really, and he concludes that he has a perspective. I love this. He concludes, humbly, I think, that he has a perspective that maybe others don't. Well, clearly, he's not Jewish. He's Gentile, right? He came to faith after all these things took place, and and he thinks at this time that this, at least for Theophilus' good friend, might be helpful. It might be worth recording. I think there's one more thing that we see here from the how, however. It's about Luke's path to faith in Christ. It's a a true skeptic's path, right? It it truly is. It's a person who's from a culture that is totally foreign to the the Jewish traditions and the Jewish uh, predictions of a Messiah is to come. And so, I mean, he's got to learn everything from square one, from the beginning, and he needs proof. He's a scientist. He's a physician. He's a historian, and it shows quite frankly, how, how dedicated he is. I mean, this is not a man who just has blind faith. This is not a man like in the parable we saw at the close of our Desire uh, Wisdom series where it was like, boom, he just came upon the treasure and was like, aha, yeah, I believe, I believe. No, this is a man who needed, who needed evidence. He needed to see things for himself. And that's why he said, I followed all things closely for some time past. Well, then he tells us why. He moves into his purpose for writing his letter and eventually acts. And again, in verses 3 to 4, it says this. He says, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So I've already mentioned that Luke felt in the humblest of ways that he had a perspective that he had a point of view of what happened since the days that Jesus walked the earth to the birth of the early church that would be helpful to his friend Theophilus. As to why he first tells us he feels there needs to be an orderly account, that's very interesting in itself, but essentially we can assume that at least from the skeptic's point of view, there have been many holes in the accounts in all the other writings. Now, you can imagine Luke is, he's traveling with Paul. He's talking to eyewitnesses. He's hearing the preaching, and he's hearing a story over here that was not recorded by Mark, and he's hearing another story that was not recorded by Matthew or or by John or or retold by some of the others. John, in chapter 20, I believe, of his gospel, he says, 
this is, just a, this is just the bare minimum of what we've recorded of what Jesus accomplished in his life. If we were to record everything that he did, all the books of the world would not hold the events and the things that he did. And so Luke is looking at all this and he's like, you know, I, I need to compile this. I need to bring it together because there, there, there may be some missing things. There may be a few things that are missing. And that's why his gospel is so long. He's brought together many of the things that others had not written about. And that's why, again, we have chapters 1 and 2 concerning aspects of the incarnation that no other gospel has. But also, he has two of the parables that we looked at in the Desire Wisdom series that, honestly, I think most of us would say, wow, thank you, Luke, for recording those parables. One of them, maybe not so much, the really hard one, right? The parable of the rich man and Lazarus about heaven and hell. He's the only one who records that parable. But also, there's the parable of the prodigal sons. Luke is the only one who records that. Luke thought that was pretty important to have in his testimony, in his testimony. And I'm very glad personally that he recorded those parables, but also his whole letter. Now, there's one word in these four verses that we're going to focus on before we conclude today uh, uh, in this text, and it's key. It's the key to understanding why Luke wrote this gospel and why he wrote the book of Acts. Do you see the word? Do you see the word? Maybe, maybe I can highlight it for you. Yeah, there it is. It's the word certainty. So that you can have certainty. Now look, I don't know if there's a word in our culture today, really, uh, today that's more unpopular in our modern culture than this idea, this concept of being certain about anything. I'm not aware of it. If there is, really, well, maybe tolerant, you know, or being intolerant. The idea in our world today is, is that it's a pretty much impossible to suggest that we can have certainty about anything in this world today. Here's the problem. Here's the problem. Luke, starting next week in his gospel, we're going to see, is going to lay out one, listen, absolute truth claim, absolute truth claim after the other. They're just going to pile up one after the other and he knows this. He knows Theophilus will need to have certainty about what he's going to share. He's going to, have, going to need to have that. So now before we tackle the challenge that the idea of certainty presents with us today, let's be certain we don't miss this. Luke clearly thought that that was an issue in that day as well. Right? That's why he says this. And he declares that, Theophilus, I want to make sure that you, you are certain about the things that you are taught. About whom? About Jesus. Not about things that I say, but about Jesus. I want it to be certain. So, friends, one of the saddest things to me, I think, really, about our modern culture, and it's primarily due to the vast, uh, you know, access that we have to the Internet and to information and knowledge and facts, is we, we, we are utterly arrogant in our culture today, I believe, about how much we have progressed over the ancients, over the people in the days of Jesus, and even past that. We, we think we're so much more enlightened. We're so much smarter that they were just like Neanderthals with their knuckles dragging on the ground and barely able to you know, sustain life. Hardly true at all. Luke was writing into a very multicultural world, just like Vancouver, quite frankly, that in many ways was as advanced socially, philosophically, and even spiritually as today. 
Theophilus and others had a myriad of choices in that culture that day religiously. There were like millions of gods, millions of different things that you could worship, millions of different gods that you were told you needed to worship to appease, otherwise the weather, food, you know, you name it, was going to be a problem. There were a plethora of gods to worship, shrines, statues everywhere, hundreds and hundreds of philosophers and soothsayers, as well as rabbis and priests. Certainty? Absolute truth? It's been a problem. It's been a problem all through history. Well, today we think we're so much more civilized and advanced, don't we, right? We do, we do. And on top of all that, we have a new and more faithful God, don't we, today? It's spelled a little more than G-O-D, but it's, it's the God of science, isn't it? Science apparently is the only thing that provides us with certainty today, people will tell you. I mean, the prevailing attitude in our world and culture is that other than in the realm of science, no one can be certain about anything, especially absolute truth claims, right? You're aware of that, aren't you? Am I the only one who notices this on Facebook, on the internet, on news? I mean, the, the absolute truth claims are anathema in our world today. To make an absolute truth claim today is to set yourself up to being accused of being intolerant at best, hateful at worst. Unless you're not a Christian, <laughs> unless you're not a Christian in our culture today. Let me give you an illustration. I think an awful lot of people in our world who, who will, in our culture, and some Christians think the same thing, uh, which is a bit mind-boggling, but, but they would look at it this way, that the idea that you know, Jesus is the only way, you know, that's intolerant, of course, right? Because that's an absolute truth claim that none of us can accept. So there's an illustration a lot of people like to use, and they use it in schools and universities and ph philosophy classes, and it's called the mountaintop experience, right? And so the idea of the mountaintop experience or illustration is that, you know, God, there is a God. If, if, if we're going to grant for a second that there is a God, that, that He's up at the top of the mountain. And, and, and the way to God, well, there's many paths, and let's just be tolerant people, and let's just understand that there are many paths to getting to this God. And so, of course, there's the Christian path, which is kind of rocky and hard and more, more difficult than some other paths, right? There's the Christian path, and, and there's the Jewish path to get to the top of this mountain, right? And, and there's the Muslim path, there's the Hindu path, there's the Buddhist path, there, there's a, I'm a good person path, <laughs> Yeah. There are a lot of people who, you know, like, it's just, just the most important thing, just be a good person, and you'll get there, you'll get to God, and there's all these different paths. Now, despite the fact, despite the fact that none of these religions believe that their God is the same God as all the others, kind of breaks down the illustration, makes it kind of senseless, despite that, despite that, the point to the relativist, relativist, pardon me, to the anti-absolute truth person is that this view is the, it's the what? Wait for it. It's the what? That view is the absolute truth. I point that out to you, Christian, because it's important that we understand in our world and our culture that, you know, we, we, don't, we don't have to take a back seat here. Every human being, every person does believe in absolute truth claims. It's just as long as it's their absolute truth claim. And so, certainty is a big deal. 
Now, let me show you. Let me give you another illustration. Thanks to people like Dan Brown, you know, Da Vinci Code, anybody read that book? It's awesome, right? Not so much. So Dan Brown, and then most of you are too young here to remember uh, the Jesus Seminar back in the 50s and 60s, right, which produced a, 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 a whole host of very liberal and progressive theologians. And one of the big phrases in that day and a was, question everything. I remember when Andrew, our oldest son, came home from high school, and, you know, we used, to, we used to have peaceful dinners at our house. It was wonderful. We'd talk about things, and then all of a sudden, one day, he comes home from school, and we're having dinner, and, and we're talking about politics, you know, like, I don't know, Ronald Reagan was running. It's a long time ago, I know, but, and, and all of a sudden, Andrew started questioning everything. We had no peace at our dinner table ever after that. That's just an aside. just want to let you know that. But, but back in the 50s and 60s, even theologians, Christian theologians, began to question everything. I mean, the questions were put on the table were, well, what evidence do we have that Jesus really did live? Huh? That's a good question, isn't it? And, and do you need to believe in the virgin birth to be a Christian? And here was the big one. Dan Brown popularized this, and most, you'll hear this argument today when you talk to anyone who's not a Christian, who's a skeptic, they're going to say something like this. Well, come on, you know, much of the Bible is based on oral tradition, you know, these nomadic guys, you know, in sandals, walking around and just word of mouth passing this oral tradition from one person onto the other, and we all know that cannot be trusted. Now, let me show you this because this is so important. If we, if, if, listen, if you could go back to that day, if you, and if you study history, you're going to find out what I'm saying is true. If you and I could go back to that day and we could stand before Dr. Luke and Theophilus and we could, we could tell them that, if we said to them, come on, you guys know um, that, that, that oral tradition is just not trustworthy, they would look at you and they would say, are you crazy? We trust oral tradition far more than we trust written tradition. That's what they believed in that day. Actually, I'm going to show you in a second, we actually do today, even though we seem to have lost it, right? So let me show you this, because this is, this is really awesome. Luke, Luke would have, listen, when he, when he went, it's more about the how now, how he wrote this book. When, when he went and questioned different people who were eyewitnesses at that time, the, the strategy was when you were doing this kind of thing is that you would, you would test their testimony. You would test their testimony. You'd have to be a little bit sly about it. And, and lawyers in court today, eyewitness testimony, do this, which is why I'm saying we do believe in this today and we do trust it actually more than written documents. He would have done something like this. He would have gone to some of the eyewitnesses who were in the boat with Jesus when the storm came up. Remember that? And they would have, he would have said something like this. I'm just making it up, but it would have been something like this. He would have said, yeah, so, so guys, so you were in the boat when the storm came up, and, and so, so what I've heard is what happened was Jesus was asleep in the front of the boat, and then you guys woke him up because you were terrified, and then the amazing thing is, is that he did, he stood up on, on the bow of the boat, and he did a double backflip into the water, and by the time he reached the water, it was completely calm, and he made a no-splash dive. <laughs> And the disciples would have looked at him and go, You're, what, what are you talking about? Are you nuts? No. He was asleep in the front of the boat. He woke up. He looked at us because he realized we were being really lame, fearing that, you know, that, that he's with us, the Son of God is with us, and we're in any danger whatsoever. And then he just waved his hand and he spoke, be calm. 
And you see, for Luke, for anyone in that day in history, that's how you would go about making sure that there was no such thing as hashtag fake news. You would verify oral testimony by making sure that more than one, in fact, multiple witnesses agreed to the same thing. And sometimes it was through surreptitious methods to get them to tell you the truth about what had happened. And that's how they avoided something like we have today. It's kind of ironic, isn't it? When you think about today, weird. I mean, can you trust everything that's on the internet? Can you trust everything that your politicians tell you? Oh, dear Lord. So into all that, now look at this. Luke, the historian, the documentarian, the physician scientist, and the follower says to Theophilus and to you and I, here's what you're going to need to have certainty about. And we're going to read this next week. Theophilus, Christian, an angel appeared to an old man by the name of Zechariah who was married to a woman by the name of Elizabeth. They were really old, kind of like Abram and Sarah. Remember that? Abraham and Sarah. They were really old. They were past the childbearing years. And she had been barren all her life. They weren't able to have children. This angel, certainty, appears to Zechariah, and he prophesies in advance that Zechariah's wife, his womb is going to be opened, she's going to bear a child, and that they need to name him John, he will become John the Baptist. Zechariah's response is unbelief, right? He's like, are you kidding me? Come on, really? Seriously? Lack of certainty. Well, because of that, the angel declares that he will be struck dumb, and he is struck dumb. He can't talk until the moment, but then days later, it becomes known that Elizabeth is pregnant. She's conceived. You need to have certainty about that. Do you have certainty about that? Do you see this as a truth claim? And then, next, he's going to say, Theophilus, you need to have certainty about this. There was a Jewish girl. She was 14 years of age. So she was betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph. They had never slept together. An angel of the Lord comes to her and says... You are favored among all other women, and the Holy Spirit of God is going to come over you. He's going, to, he's going to make you pregnant with a child, and you are going to name him Jesus. Well, Mary's a little bit in disbelief too, but she's not struck dumb. Uh, she, she receives this news, and you know the story, right? You know the story. These are the things that he's going to require us to have certainty about. Do you have certainty about these things? Do you trust and believe these things? Listen, in a day and age of science, people don't believe in a man who can rise from the dead. People don't believe in miracles like this. Certainty. These miracles are proof. Friends, even today in the church, there is growing, sadly, a movement towards embracing uncertainty. It's, it's, it's a embracing the uncertainty of our culture on so many levels. Instead of certainty about what the Word of God says, we hear, we hear words like, well, you know, it's, it's okay to, to see the Christian life as more of a mystery, more, more of a journey, and, and, and that we need to be more open-handed, right? The, the idea is that being certain about what the Scriptures teach is an impediment, hear this, to faith, to coming to faith, and to growing in your faith. To that, the gospel writer, Dr. Luke, is going to say, read my gospel and be certain. Believe and trust these things. 
And so ultimately, this gospel that we're going to see and we're going to go through uh, for four months to begin with, then we'll take a break and do some other things uh, around Easter, and then we'll come back to it. Uh, this is going to speak to two groups of people most. It's going to speak to the skeptic, which is awesome. So if you're a skeptic here today and you're like, hey, I need proof, you're going to love this series. You need to be here to hear the things that Luke is going to teach. The skeptic is the one who needs to investigate and be shown before they will believe or trust anything, anything. And then it's also written to the religious person. And there are religious people in the church today, and some of us have got the T-shirt or have had it anyway. This is the person who thinks they know it all. They're very certain about certain things, right? And they proudly wear their certainty and the morality on T-shirts and bumper stickers that just sh- that show how moral and certain they are, and at the same time, of course, how judgmental they can be. Christian, I'll speak to the Christian here specifically as we come to our conclusion, we need to be careful. We need to be very careful here. In the face of be- being called arrogant and intolerant, and your desire to show how certain and absolute you are, we tend to appear very judgmental. We're we're like, okay, you want to know what is absolutely wrong? This This is the deflection that we have in the church sometimes, is rather than talking about what we're absolutely certain about, which is about Jesus, His coming, and, and who we are as a result of that. No, we, we want to make sure that people know what is absolutely wrong in our world. Now, some of you, again, are too, too young to, to remember this, but I remember the days when it was like dancing, like Christians don't dance, that's just wrong, that's absolutely wrong. People in the world are like, what is wrong with you? You can't have fun, right? And of course, drinking, beer, wine, pfft, wrong, absolutely we need to abstain. You know, tattoos, that was a big one a little while ago, right? Especially when everyone's getting a tat, you know, tattoos, right? Those are terrible. Christmas trees, for certain, absolutely wrong. It's pagan, you know, brought in by the Romans in 336, you know, the Roman Catholic Church, wrong. And don't get me started on the guy in the red suit. Christians, we need to be careful. We need to be careful. I think one of the things that I'll leave you with this, and just in conclusion, a couple of things. Luke's gospel gives us the best insight on how to share the gospel with someone who doesn't know Jesus, doesn't believe in Jesus, um, but, but wants to know about him. For the skeptic, it, Luke's gospel then can be seen, should be seen as possibly the best way to evangelize, to share Jesus. And let me put it this way. I've been thinking about this in the last couple of weeks because I know most of you are, are like I am. We look around in our culture and in our community. We look at friends and people we would love to see become saved and, and follow Jesus and, and, and be with us. I, I hope you've come to the conclusion that I've come to. We can't save anybody, right? I can't save anybody. You can't save anybody. Preachers and preaching cannot save anyone. Gospel tracks on their own, as well as T-shirts, bumper stickers, gospel music, none of these things can save anyone. We know that, or we should at least. But here's something that I, I think we can be certain about, Christian, all of us as Christians, and it will be a good start. And then I'll give you two things that you can do with that. The first thing is, is that you need to be certain and willingly certain to know this. You're a sinner. I'm a sinner, saved by grace. There's nothing that you could do to gain God's approval and acceptance and be forgiven. He did it all for you. He revealed it all to you. 
You're not perfect either today, but you are more than a work in progress. You are a saint in Jesus Christ. So here's what you can do and can be certain about. Two things I think you can do. First, personally, Christian, just get closer and closer and closer to Jesus. Especially at Christmas, get closer and closer and closer to Christ. And secondly, if you really do, like I do, want to see people in our community who don't know Jesus yet, who don't believe in Him yet, give their life to Him, believe in Him, and trust Him, invite them to come close to God. He's the one who can change them. The Holy Spirit of God is the change agent. Not you, not me. But that's why we gather here. We gather here to open the Word, to do exactly what Luke is doing, opening the Word, to share it with people in the hope that people will be drawn closer to God. Not saved by us, but drawn closer to God. And that, I think, is exactly what Luke is doing here in his gospel, especially in his introduction. It's an invitation. It's merely an invitation to his dear friend, whom he is discipling, to read his letter, to read the story of Jesus from the beginning. Luke himself has spent the time to read, to pray, to talk to others day and night about Jesus. And he's got all of the information, but he knows And if he doesn't have the information, he knows where he can get it, and he begins to write. So, friends, this is one of the reasons why this Christmas we have a site called ChristmasInSquamish.com. It's to help you and I invite people. We're not inviting them to church. The church is not a building place or an event. You're the church. We're inviting people to come close to God. Pray with me, would you?